EFBS. Sit Rep with Christopher Lee. Hello there, and welcome, welcome to the Sit Rep Roundtable on a warm, sunny and ash-free afternoon in London town. Well, in the next hour, the great debate, Brown, Cameron and Clegg on defence. Do they really know what they're talking about? The new security challenges, is the UK up to them? And killing Al-Qaeda leaders won't stop the bombers, plenty more where they came from. Cyprus, after the elections. Now, what's the future for the whole island? And the volcano, the true power in the land. And... And, 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 why Bly was not just of the bounty, and more ands, why Brits can't test drive national pride. Now, later this evening, the three party, main party leaders will be debating on UK TV, defence and foreign affairs. The party lines on defence issues are reasonably clear. The Labour Party and the Conservatives think on the same lines. The Lib Dems don't quite. Here's Jamie Gordon. Labour and the Conservatives both want to keep the UK nuclear deterrent, but the Liberal Democrats would abandon Trident, possibly for something much cheaper, if they were to win the election. The three defence spokesmen were quizzed on a special British Forces News defence programme on BFBS a couple of weeks ago, and we got an indication there of where the parties stood on defence. All agree that a strategic defence review will map out the medium-term future for the armed forces, but there are significant differences about what should be included in it. When Secretary of State for Defence Bob Ainsworth, Shadow Secretary Liam Fox and Liberal Democrat defence spokesman Paul Keach got to the subject of SDR, it became clear that above all, what will shape the future of defence is cold, hard cash. Dr Liam Fox. I think we can't make the mistake of assuming that current warfare is what future wars will look like. We therefore have to maintain generic defence capability, able to adapt to a range of potential scenarios. We're also going to have to invest heavily in some areas that perhaps are not seen as a threat at the present time, cyber warfare being one of them. Despite showing some agreement with Dr Fox, Bob Ainsworth remained sceptical on whether the Conservatives had the money to implement their vision of the future British military. I worry that he hasn't got the support of his Chancellor to have uh, you know, that balanced force, an air force with two capable uh, aircraft types, uh, carrier strike capability uh, in the Navy and a high-tech capable army, and I don't know whether or not the Conservatives are really serious. Paul Keach, having reiterated the Lib Dems' policy of abandoning Trident, said that in years to come, NATO should be prepared to burden share. What we do know is if we're going to have and be able to remain uh, a force for good in the world, we're going to have to cooperate with some of our European um, allies as well, as uh, in NATO, as well as uh, individually. For example, if we're going to have new carriers... If the French want a new carrier and we want two new carriers, why aren't we talking to them more closely about that? So apart from the small matter of up to £100 billion worth of nuclear deterrent, all three major parties accept that the provision of equipment and the welfare of the British Armed Forces are paramount. But as with everything, the devil is in the detail. Perhaps tonight the party leaders will be more specific on the prospects for the British military and how they can afford it. Jamie Gordon reporting for Citrep. Jamie, thank you very much. All with me in the studio, the former Daily Mail diplomatic editor, John Dickey, from City University here in London, the Middle East analyst, Dr Rosemary Hollis, and the director of the Military Science Programme at the Royal United Services Institute for Defence and Security Studies, the former naval person, Michael Codner. Michael, um, this idea that it really is the Strategic Defence Review um, really is about cash. It ain't. It's not about cash. It's, it's about what Britain wants to be doing in the next 30 or 40 years? It's very much about what choices Britain needs to make, so what it's going to do um, in, the, in, in, in the foreseeable period. However, the big decision that needs to be taken 
in the election is how much the nation is prepared to spend for the um, international influence, for the uh, status of the United Kingdom, uh, and to what extent defence contributes to that, because if the budget is to be cut, then we are at a bit of a watershed here. And I'm not a strong, necessarily a strong advocate of um, huge investment in defence, but there is a watershed here which we're facing in the review, but the political choice that has to be made before you get to the review uh, is this matter of whether to sustain the budget at current levels uh, to ring fences. Mm. Um, and even that, of course, means that you have diminishing returns through defence inflation. Rosemary, Rosemary Hollis, um, defence, I mean, military spending, etc., it's never really a big election deal because it's far too complicated. It all seems to me that if elections are about slogans, you can't do slogan analysis in, in defence. Well, I don't think any of the candidates are going to come clean on the detail this evening for that very reason, that if they do, then they engage the public in decisions that, in a sense, I think they'd rather be relieved of. Of course, everybody would like to continue to have a nuclear deterrent if this actually gives Britain standing in the world. I don't, I don't think selling Britain as a, a poorer, more modest nation that perhaps had better step back from the top table at the UN Security Council and so on is going to fly for any of the parties. However, that is an option. That is a prospect. Mm. And I don't think the candidates will dare play it. Michael. Um, th there is a way ahead which the Liberal Democrats could have taken in this, it seems to me, and they've started it over the relationship with the United States, saying it should be um, a, a somewhat more distant. Um, that would be if the United Kingdom decided that it would go down the route of abandoning Trident and showing leadership within that community of right-thinking nations. Uh, and it, it's a bit like North Korea and Israel and... I was actually thinking about the Scandinavian nations, Canada, you know, right, the ones right. we talk about, the Northern yes. Lights, and actually say that uh, our status in the world will actually relate to this high moral standing uh, and that our influence over the United States will be that uh, dialectic rather than that we're on the inside doing what we're told and for that we get some return. But John yeah. Dickey, but can, I, can I bring John, because it, it, it comes it from what you've too. just been talking about. <laughs> Uh, of you know, foreign policy, John, is the, is the leader on this. But even foreign policy, which is, well, it's its very term, it's global analysis of what we do from trade to relations to special relationships that are no more, to quote a title of a book. Um, it, it, those things are too difficult to understand in an election. I agree. I don't want to sound heretical, but I don't think defence in detail will really carry much weight this evening. There are too many political minefields which are just waiting for these three leaders. And the most vulnerable of all is David Cameron in the sense of Europe. He has a party which is divided between those from the Thatcherite era who are still Eurosceptic and, and those who are more pro-European, like Chris Patton, like Geoffrey Howe. And when he's challenged as to which direction he goes in in Europe, he's going to find it very difficult. Equally, I think the Liberal Democrat leader, Nick Clegg, will have problems on the political level in Europe because he's talking about getting much closer to Europe and 
That, I think, he's had to water down by saying, well, of course we'll have a referendum before we take any big decisions. And then again, uh, Brown will be faced with the fact that he has been marginalised recently in Europe by the activities of uh, President Sarkozy and Bundeskanzler uh, Angela Merkel. And, of course, attached to the main philosophical European issue is the question of immigration. And this is going to be a firecracker for all three. Mm. Can Where's I my... just add in, we, we were debating this subject last night at City University, the, uh, the options for Britain and, and visions for Britain and so on. And we were trying out this Scandinavian model, uh, the Scandinavian model, the, the Canada model and so on, and the absent trident and so on, step back from the Security Council. And uh, it, it's, it's interesting because if you, if you want to position the country in terms of a certain moral stand, we then tried to translate that into what does that mean in material terms? Because after all, Tony Blair was certain that morality was on his side when he went into Sierra Leone, uh, Kosovo, uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. Well, we, the, the advantage there, we weren't, well, certainly in the first two, uh, Sierra Leone and Kosovo, we weren't there that long and we knew we were coming out. And we were in there with a lot of other people. Yeah. And uh, Collective morality. That's good. Uh, we came up with a definition, which is uh, don't even start if you can't accomplish what it is that you intend to do. And that is about capability. And that is the problem, whether the British armed forces are to help the United States look multilateral or to act as one of many Europeans in a new European agenda or to, to bat for Britain individually and do good things when the possibilities are there. I don't think John will rise in front of our three leaders tonight. I mean, there will be a question of priorities for the, the servicemen, particularly in terms of equipment. You might even get, as the time suggested today, an attempt to get an apology from the Prime Minister for misleading the Iraq inquiry on the question of the... That's good stuff, isn't budget. it? Really? That's for, very for, good, good stuff. Television. It's good television. That's the sort of thing that will come up, not the dialectic of uh, where you're going to distribute your forces, but uh, you'll get this commitment to stand by the forces and there will be a demand, <clears> perhaps, for better treatment of their families in terms of accommodation, which has been highlighted by a report on okay. how badly off the families are. Michael, uh, Michael Codd, uh, your um, house, the Royal United Services Institute, come up with some questions, defence questions. I mean, if you were there tonight, what would you want to ask from that lot? Well, the, the questions that we, um, that, that we put to what we call the defence and security community as opposed to the, mm -hmm. to, to the nation as a whole, and therefore um, the, there is some specific expert slant there. Uh, the, the questions were... Um, uh, is the big issue of the election, as far as defence is concerned, the United Kingdom's perceptions of its uh, global status and whether this is something that should be sustained and the consequences of doing that. That was one. Trident um, was a second. Uh, whether Afghanistan actually does relate to national security was the third. Mm. Um, is that sort of based on the idea that if you spent three and a half billions... Uh, in the UK, gave it to MI5 and special branch, you'd have just as good a security uh, wrap-up as you would if by sending people to Afghanistan. 
Well, uh, it relates to what our mission actually is, whether the mission is uh, to keep al-Qaeda out of Afghanistan and therefore out of the United Kingdom, or whether it's actually um, somewhat more complex and relates to our relationship with the United States, the moral responsibility for seeing through um, the original invasion, um, our reputation, going back in to help the Americans out when they were busy in Iraq, mm. all of these other reasons for being there. Um, the other two were... were um, uh, the special relationship we've already talked about a bit, about the relationship with America and whether it is special or not. And finally, um, whether terrorism really is, in defence terms, um, the biggest issue uh, for, in, in, from the perceptions of the British public. Yeah. I tell you, uh, uh, Rosemary, the, 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 Ian Fox was saying, well, you know, in future we've got to think in terms of allies. Well, we've, you know, we've always thought, for the 20th century, we've thought in terms of allies. I mean, we couldn't have done Germany by itself. We couldn't have done the First World War by itself, etc., etc. But it was interesting, um, it was a marvellous quote from Richard Pearl, um, who was, I think, the Deputy Assistant Undersecretary at the time of the Reagan administration, who in fact ran a lot of defence and foreign policy at the time. And he was saying that, well, when... Um, um, when uh, uh, Tony Blair came over. It didn't really matter whether he says we'll come with you or not. Um, you know, it's nice to have people on board. Well, Rumsfeld it, also said you don't have to come if yeah. you don't want to. And so, where is this? I mean, I know John doesn't believe in a special relationship, or in fact, it only exists at the time when both sides want to put it together. Um, but where is Liam Fox coming from when he says, "Oh, well, we have to do things with the French and the..." Uh, and the Americans, apart from giving a Frenchman command well, of the first aircraft carrier, I'm not sure what you do. Th this, I think, is the huge challenge for the Conservatives because uh, for a long time, working with the Western Alliance and principally the United States made sense. But th this particular administration in Washington is, is, is far less interested than uh, previous ones in, in whether Britain's on board or not. Uh, we really don't count, I'm afraid. Yeah. Yeah. John, just a final a bit about this, uh, and then I want to go and talk about Pakistan, because that seems to be continuously the missing link And when we start thinking about um, uh, Afghanistan, where we're heavily involved. Um, there is a sense that there's a whole new series of uh, security challenges, which we haven't picked up on yet. And when we talk about the... the strategic defence review and where Britain wants to be. We're almost as if saying, well, we will design how the world is in the future. Well, until we design uh, our own policy and, and stop talking about uh, <clears throat> punching above our weight uh, and become real, I don't think we can map out a, a defence strategy. And I really don't think this evening is an occasion for doing that anyway. It's, it's more broad brush. Mm. I mean, uh, I think the, the three candidates will be put on the spot on... You know, much broader issues than, you know, you know, what we're going to do about Afghanistan or what we're going to do about... These three guys Afghanistan. know what they're talking about, John? I think they do. They've been very well briefed the last 48 hours. I mean, I was down in Westminster today. I mean, they were buzzing around the papers all the time. Yeah. yeah. Michael, you think they are? Uh, certainly the three pieces that they've done for our journal. I thought Nick Cleggs was exceptional, actually. I was very surprised. What who wrote um, that? I don't know. Um, uh, the, the Conservatives, uh, there are differences of view... Um, that's, um, they ought to give it to Arbuthnot, don't they, on the, on the HEZD. He, he could write a good story. Um, what do you think, uh, Rosemary? Do they know what they're talking about as far as you're concerned, the Middle East? 
etc. They really grasped it all. Oh, oh they're, they're not giving me nearly enough information on what they have in mind for the Middle East. It's very confusing, and as I'm about to head there, I know I'm going to be asked by Israelis and Palestinians, what do they think? Actually, I had Does a it matter what we think? Because you were saying it didn't much matter... Oh, I think the Israelis care deeply about uh, the position of the senior European states mm. and obviously first and foremost about the United States. And uh, they're, they're reacting, responding extraordinarily negatively to any kind of criticism of their policies. And, it was uh, have done. No, it's have done. And anyway, we have no leverage, uh, Dr Hollis, uh, uh, on uh, Israel. Uh, the United States, as we both know, is the only one that can deliver. Uh, uh, you're both jumping to a conclusion as to where I'm taking this. Go on, then. <laughs> oh, yeah, interrupting, uh, they, that's all. The, the, um, uh, yes, they no, always they have what reacted. We thought. I don't think they do care all that much what we think. It was evidence when they had the Dubai assassination. By no, Muslim. no, no, I, I beg to differ. They, ha they have a sophisticated policy which pounces on any critic inside any of the senior European countries. And uh, they have a, an active approach in the UK. Uh, to go out to the campuses, to well, uh, appear on, on the media and all the rest But for what the government says to them, they, they don't give all that much time. Uh, they have not been happy with Miliband, which is interesting. The foreign sector. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Not his they, brother, you mean? Uh, not his brother, I right. mean. Uh, they have not been happy because he's been tougher on issues mm. to do with products coming from Jewish settlements mm. in the West Bank and not giving them tax breaks, customs duty breaks, uh, simply because they're made in colonies in occupied land. And they were not happy when Miliband presided over the expulsion of an Israeli diplomat for the assassination, over the assassination in Dubai of a Hamas activist. And their reading of this is that there's a peeling away of solidarity uh, in the cooperation in the war on terror. And this has rattled them. OK, I want to talk about another... Sorry, they were unhappy about the expulsion of, of, a, of a Mossad agent in London. Well, the Russians were, was it 115? 105 in uh, 1971, yeah. It yeah. makes for a very interesting uh, situation. OK, listen, um, I want to talk about Pakistan. Um, the bombers are very much at work in Pakistan. I think, I'm not sure, I think that last year... For example, the latest figures I saw, there were something like 12,600 casualties from, from attacks in Pakistan alone. Um, it would appear Pakistan is the most important regional state in the effort to resolve the conflict in Afghanistan. It's also, for a number of reasons, the most suffering. Well, on the line, um, the writer and commentator, Ahmed Rashid, whose two books, Taliban, Descent into Chaos, are required reading to understand this conflict. Um, I mean, the, the history of Pakistan is, is that of a state seemingly constantly at war or on the edge of one. I mean, what do Pakistanis, not the government, but Pakistanis themselves, say about these constant attacks? Well, it's, it's really been a, a, of enormous concern, obviously. Security is very, very bad. Uh, it's very unpredictable where these bombs will, will go off. Uh, I, there's a nationwide campaign now by these extremists. It's not just affecting the border regions with Afghanistan, but it's affecting major cities, Karachi, Lahore, well away from the border. It's affecting the economy very badly. Uh, obviously, there's no investment. There's a lot of capital flight. 
uh, property prices have fallen, uh, and it's, it's, uh, inflation is increasing, joblessness is increasing uh, because, of, uh, because of the economic unease. And, of course, it's leading to a lot of political embarrassment because the, neither the army nor the government seem to be able to get this under control. The uh, Pakistan's military intelligence, the ISI, and Taliban leaders do, though, seem to have a sometimes suspiciously close relationship, don't they? Well, I think, you know, we should remember that the after 9-11 and the defeat of the Taliban in Afghanistan, um, almost the entire Afghan Taliban leadership escaped. Uh, and they escaped into Pakistan where they set up stop and where, that, uh, again, in 2003, they relaunched their uh, insurgency in Afghanistan. And since then, we, we, we've been facing the results of that in Afghanistan. And um, certainly that relationship has been there. Um, uh, it, it was a very big mistake, I think, of the Bush administration not to acknowledge the dangers inherent in uh, a poor Pakistan to keep the Taliban like that. Um, and uh, there's been, I think, a much tougher policy uh, uh, with both carrots and sticks by the Obama administration, um, especially with the Americans now coming into the south uh, and trying to secure Helmand and Kandahar, uh, which are, of course, adjacent to the Pakistani province of Baluchistan, where a lot of the uh, Afghan Taliban leadership is based, and from where they get their logistics. Tell me, the, um, if there's going to be any talking, and eventually all conflicts uh, end in talking, or we hope they do, and you can only make peace with your enemies, can't you? You don't make it with your friends. Uh, Pakistan has to be right in the middle somewhere, or even controlling uh, this dialogue. Well, I think, you know, this is a very delicate issue that um, uh, you're right in, in one respect because the Taliban leadership are living here and, and Pakistan can either give you access to them or, or not give you access to them. Um, and, and that's the problem that President Karzai is going to face uh, in the future. Now, uh, but the other aspect is that if Pakistan decides to insert too many of its own demands, such as, for example, uh, getting rid of the Indian presence in Afghanistan. Or there's a sense by the Afghans that the Americans, the NATO, is handing over responsibility of these negotiations to Pakistan. Then I think there will be a very severe reaction, first by the regional countries, India, Iran, Russia, the Central Asian states, who don't want to see a once again a Pakistani-dominated Afghanistan, like they faced in the 90s, and which led to the civil war. Um, and, and nor the Afghans, really, this time around, going to accept a Pakistani-brokered um, government. So I think, you know, Pakistan has to be very, very careful. It has to moderate its demand. It has to have uh, the Western powers have to encourage it to moderate its demand, so that um, it, it, some of its interests are certainly met in any final settlement, but it cannot be seen to be determining that settlement. Ahmed Rashid in uh, Lahore in Pakistan, thank you very much indeed. Um, if you were wondering why there was a bit of a gap, it's the, it's the, it's the, um, the gap on the, uh, on the timescale there with his mobile telephone. Um, Rusmi, he makes this important point and, you know, I was sort of saying, well, you know, Pakistan's so important. It's what other people in the region think, isn't it?
They don't want Pakistan to say, right, we have control over the future of Afghanistan again. So many other countries from, from the Mediterranean shores right the way through to the Bay of Bengal. Oh, it's such a difficult question, you know. I mean, there was a perception when the invasion of Iraq happened that somehow you could isolate it from its neighbourhood <clears throat> and do some social engineering inside and sort it all out and introduce a new system of government and a new band of leaders. And lo and behold, the, the, the involvement of the neighbours in everything that happens has increased, if anything, I, I've probably said it before on CITREP, I, I, I really hold to the view that as of 2003 and the intervention in Iraq and Afghanistan is, is working out the same way, we are faced with a far less secure state system in the region. And that means that there are a number of so-called non-state actors, al-Qaeda being an obvious one, but Hezbollah being another, Hamas a third, uh, uh, who are growing in prominence and importance. And the neighbours can't help but choose clients inside each other's countries. Mm. And they're playing out the regional politics internally in, in several spaces. Lebanon's one, Iraq is another... Afghanistan, definitely, shortly to be Yemen, if not already. Um, Somalia's gone beyond it. I mean, th th nobody particularly wants to get too involved there. But uh, when Somalia spills out and comes and visits everybody else, including with, with piracy, uh, th then the debate is, well, since we can't turn that place around, we're not going to do a trusteeship, we're not going to do an Afghanistan, we're not going to do an Iraq. So what are we going to do? Mm. John, there you are, tonight's debate. Um, if one of them, um, Clegg, Brown, Cameron, or whichever order you'd like to have those, actually explained that as, as, it could as Rosie has. could with the uh, no, ability if, and intricacy we'll of tape. Dr Hollis. We'll I mean, send... she's a past mistress of yes, this. But listen, and John, you can't expect that of, of Clegg and uh, yeah, Cameron. If one, and, if one of them actually said, be... that's the problem, people would say, well, I didn't get it all, but I actually trust the guys know what they're talking about. Yes, as we trust uh, Dr Hollis, but I don't know whether they can trust uh, what Cameron, Brown and Clegg say because they're people uh, with uh, an interest in securing power and therefore anything they say is guided by how much it helps that ascent to power. Uh, and therefore one should be careful tonight in, in not accepting everything at its face value. It's all a great, great political game. OK, if you want to watch the great political game as opposed to the football, um, <clears throat> the, um, the bit on BFBS uh, TV tonight, 8 o'clock uh, UK time, you can actually watch uh, the three. Not quite the three tenors, is it? But you can actually watch the three of them in, in, in action. John, you were talking about power. Uh, changes in power northern Cyprus... Very important. Indeed, I think uh, it's the most critical situation we face since the invasion in 74. Since then, we've had all sorts of attempts to uh, unite the divided island, and we're closest with Kofi Annan's various plans, which were scuppered by President Papadopoulos, urging a no to the referendum. But since then, there has been great progress between Mehmed Ali 
Tallet, the Northern Cyprus uh, president, until this weekend, and uh, uh, President Christofios in Nicosia. They had what was uh, described as uh, important progress after some 70 meetings. But then on Sunday came the result of the elections in the north, which brings into power Devis Ergolu, who is uh, a nationalist, uh, a man who will not uh, bow to Christofios. He said that uh, in his election campaign. And any attempt uh, to resurrect the formula will be very difficult. I think the island is doomed now for years of, uh, of uh, separation. I think the trouble is that all the advances that were made in the past, uh, since September 2008, of rotating presidency, perhaps allowing 50,000 settlers from mainland Turkey to be granted citizenship, that's wiped out because Erkali will not want... Uh, a great deal of property uh, repossessed by the Greek Cypriots. He will not want that would weaken a, his a limit mandate. on the settlers because uh, uh, he will say that they are the people who support me. And equally, he will not want uh, a final settlement without guarantees from the Turkish army. Uh, the fact that the Greek Cypriots want a demilitarized island is pie in the sky as far as uh, Ergolu. It's a great pity because the island would be so much stronger, so much happier as a united island. Right. Well, yes, I'm, reading, uh, I'm discerning two key lessons from what John is saying that uh, about power and uh, about uh, those who have more to gain from the perpetuation of conflict from, than the resolution of conflict. And perhaps that would be a message looking forward to what Britain can do in the world. I, I think there's, a, there's possibly too much of a tendency to think that if, if we're ready to come in and help with allies, then uh, the good guys are going to surface to work with us and we're going to get it sorted eventually. Possibly we should be more modest about our expectations. Possibly we create as many new forces as we come in to counter mm -hmm. and that they have investment in our not succeeding. Right. There is a postscript to the elections uh, in the north of Cyprus, and that is it could affect seriously the prospects of Turkey getting membership of the EU because a Cyprus solution was essential as a step towards that. And anyway, the two members of the EU who have a veto power, and one is Greece, the other is, is Nicosia, and therefore Turkish prospects are now set back seriously by what happened in the north of Cyprus. There are a lot of people, Michael, in America who would say we've got to help Turkey, uh, a very loyal member of NATO. Indeed. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Well, I mean, the, the um, interesting aspects of all of this um, relate to, of course, Turkey and the European Union and, and the longer term and, and, and where we go with all this. But uh, one issue which um, Rosemary raised, which seems to me to be particularly um, uh, interesting, is uh, this one of the nature of the intervention. And we talked earlier about lots of nations going into Bosnia and elsewhere and the difference between that and Iraq in particular, yeah. but also Afghanistan. And there tends to be the view that uh, we're in a different era now when it is these specific interventions which are, involve counterinsurgency because we are related to a particular government that we have either put in or we're trying to support, which was not the case in the 90s. And I think that it is a presumption to say that that's where we'll be going ahead in the future rather than going back to something that is a bit more collegious yes. um, with uh, the Obama administration, which would make some of these problems much easier, particularly getting stuck in places where we don't want to stay. John, a very quick thought. Is it possible that Cyprus just stays a divided island? 
It is, alas, uh, tragically so, because uh, the North will continue to be isolated, recognised only by Ankara, and therefore, you know, it it will wither away, I'm sure, because uh, the South is much more entrepreneurial and and can manage without the North. But the other will be collectively much stronger if it it were united. And it's taking advantage of EU membership. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Right, it's coming up to... uh, Gracious me, we're late again. It's coming up to 25 minutes to the hour. Uh, you're listening to, sit, listening to Sit Rep with me, Christopher Lee, and if you've just joined us, you can catch the whole programme simply by going into sitrep at bfbs.com, that's sitrep at bfbs.com, and clicking on Listen Again. We'll be at the Sit Rep Roundtable from City University here in London, the Middle East analyst, Dr Rosemary Hollis, the former Daily Mail diplomatic editor, John Dickey, and the director of the Military Science Programme at the Royal United Services Institute, Michael Codner. Now... What I've really been waiting for. A curious seven days. This time last week, we were talking about a volcano erupting beneath a glacier, which none of us can pronounce in Iceland. Uh, the plume went 5.3 miles high. The northwesterly carried the fallout across much of northern Europe. The planes did not fly. Very good stuff. With us now, the Professor of Philosophy at Birkbeck College here at the University of London, AC Grayling. Um, Anthony, am I being naive in thinking at a time when we're supposed to be electing the most powerful and we're thinking power, all we've actually seen is rather an unnerving demonstration of our insignificance? (laughs) Do you know what? It's something we're we're altogether familiar with, really. Um, It it happens that uh, earthquakes and the associated tsunamis sometimes and volcanoes, I mean, they're quite a frequent occurrence around the world. And to our shame, we don't really... Um, think about the consequences of the people who experience them because they happen, as it might be in China or in Indonesia or somewhere like that. When it happens closer to home and it does this to us, it uh, uh, interferes with rather a major aspect of our lives and our conveniences, um, then we are brought up a little bit short and we're reminded of something which, as I say, we know pretty well, and that is that we are pretty insignificant in comparison to the power of nature. Our powers relative to nature's powers are are tiny. Uh, And uh, all our best plans, all our best devices, can be um, thoroughly upset by them. And it's quite salutary in one way. Of course, it's a tragedy for for many, but uh, it's salutary in one way in that we recognise that we're always on thin ice and we should always have a plan B. We should always keep these things in proportion. I mean, the things that we think we can do in the way of control. It's interesting. I mean, I was fascinated by um, the way that people were extraordinarily calm about it. Now, if you get a load of people right around the world jammed in an airport or whatever and it's because of a strike or or something they get really 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 angry or the boards have gone wrong but nobody seemed to get very angry about this they were sort of they probably liked it some of them it was an experience they were going to be able to say well do you remember 2010 the volcano i was there or better still, I was stuck in the Bahamas for an extra week or something like that, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's an ill wind that blows nobody any good, and the ill wind in this case, uh, you know, kept a lot of people on extra holidays. Then on the other hand, you know, there were people who lost business opportunities or people who were late back for very important commitments that they had here. So a bit of a mixed bag. But it's, it's psychologically interesting because the uh, frustration that people feel and the anxiety they feel when they do lose control, especially of, of plans that matter to them, um, 
tends to get taken out on British Airways or Ryanair or something. But, but really, it's a kind of generic frustration at uh, the realisation that however carefully you prepare and however much you assume that things are going to follow a regular, reasonable, rational kind of pattern, from time to time, they don't. And as I said earlier, I, mean, I do think that, that that can be salutary. And it's, it's, it's remarkable how almost a nation was sort of relaxed about it. And they just sort of thought, yes, you couldn't look up and see it, but you knew it was there. Now, that is, that is a very, something in very much in the deep consciousness of, an, of a whole nation. There was one person interviewed uh, when he did finally manage to get home from somewhere, Borneo or something like that, who said, uh, you know, there's no point either complaining or repining, because after all, it was a volcano. What, what, what can you do about that? Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that's certainly the healthy attitude towards it. You see, I mean, it was, um, I thought it was, it was almost, um, I don't know much about, what um, um, pre-Roman uh, uh, gods were like. But there we had this Vulcan, didn't we, sitting on top of Mount Olympus, creating fire, probably sharpening weapons as well at the same time. And there was something, something quite mystical about the whole thing. Well, uh, in, in the case of Mount Olympus, of course, it was Hephaestus who sat oh, underneath right. the mountain <laughs> and uh, he was forging his weapons there, which yeah. is where all the belching fire and smoke came from. You know, what, what, one thing I like tremendously about, about the, um, the, the sort of lessons that one might learn from this is that when all the aircraft are grounded and you've got to get somewhere uh, any distance from home, you're reminded of just how big the world is. That's something we have forgotten. Mm-hmm. You're also reminded of the fact that with our, our normal uh, routines of travel, our transitions from one place to another, one culture to another, one language to another, happen so quickly that uh, we can never really be properly conscious of the change that we've experienced. And that's a lost opportunity, because it's said, you know, what do you know of your own country if you only know your own country? Mm-hmm. If you're uh, able to prepare a little bit and have the time to take notice of differences, of how things are done differently in other countries and other cultures, uh, you know, that, that, that's a great educative opportunity. We lose it with air travel. The Arabs say a man's soul can only travel as fast as a camel can trot, which explains jet lag, but it also explains <laughs> our, our sort of obtuseness and indifference to important differences uh, between different parts of the world. So if our planes were grounded for a whole year and we had to swim, paddle, go by sea, travel overland, we would recover a sense of due time, we would recover a sense of the size of the planet, and we would recover a sense of just really how various we are as a species. My, I got a daughter who lives under the flight path that he threw. She said, "It's unnerving. It's unnerving. <laughs> I don't really like this at all." Bring back Concord, she said. <coughs> AC Greening, thank you very, very much for joining us. By the way, my iPhone, has, which has more computing power than the whole NASA moonshot, um, was um, was great. I could plug it in, but I couldn't do anything about all those planes. I couldn't. I couldn't beat the volcano and that's what we've come really to expect and we can beat it all the time yeah, I think so smart. you mentioned the computer because i think there's one lesson that we might learn from the past few days and that is over dependence upon the computer the computer uh, and the computer simulations were, weren't accurate enough to test the atmosphere and this is something that we should bear in mind when we think that the automatic solution to everything is to get on your computer well, yes, I mean, let's continue this just for a little while because the other part of it, now people are saying, oh, well, governments uh, made us sort of ground airplanes and we should have been able to fly. I mean, our sense of being able to organise things, we are quite incompetent, aren't we? Uh, but who would have been the guy who would have said, no problems, just fly? We heard in the news about 40 minutes ago uh, that an aircraft, a typhoon, had got a bit of grit in the engine somewhere and they're, they're trying to sort it out. 
you know, just supposing a plane had crashed. We, we're health and safety conscious, and of course that's the right thing to be, I suppose, in this case. Rosemary? Well, I hugely welcome what Professor Grayling has said about it being salutary and the ways in which it's been salutary, but... Um, I want to take John on on this business about uh, it should uh, remind us not to expect too much of computers. Uh, I was thinking, isn't it remarkable that this is happening in the age of the Internet Mm -hmm. when actually we had a lot of resources Mm -hmm. to overcome some of the difficulties that we faced? Hmm. Like getting ships, for example, or organising more trains or something like that, yes. That, that, that is interesting. The, the other thing which is interesting about this, by the way, is that um, the uh, discussions between scientists and aircraft engine manufacturers on you know, the kind of safe uh, ash content of the air through which to fly uh, is actually a very, very arbitrary figure. It's a hundred times the background dirt of, of the atmosphere. That's, mm. that's rather precise. It's a nice round figure, isn't it? And, and it shows you that it's been a, a little bit plucked out of the air. Uh, and one wonders uh, whether the decision to start flying again, or indeed the original decision to stop flying, was based on anything other than... The boardroom. But, yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, this is a bit, flying is very different from lots of other things, because what you're doing is exploiting unstable equilibrium, aren't you? And the, and, and the consequences are are catastrophic in the way that they aren't if um, a ship hits something generally. Uh, And so the the risk levels have to be terribly low. So you can see why um, why the thresholds are set. Um, Can I just mention the Gazan Palestinians who thought it was definitely salutary for Europe to experience living under a dust cloud and unable to travel? They thought that was great. Mm. About time. Yeah. Anyone else here make the connection? I did, because I looked at this thing. And I made the connection between the fallout from an old volcano like that and the effects of a small, you say, a 15-kiloton nuclear ground burst uh, and how the effects... Interesting, I don't think there was very much thought given to that during the Cold War, using tactical weapons, that it could actually end up grounding all your aircraft. I mean, in my particular job, we were playing around with um, with uh, nuclear depth bombs, with a lot of time practicing and avoiding the um, the spray that came out of them, which would all have been um, would contaminate it. But it was only spray, um, and it wasn't a problem for us. But I yeah. don't think this was explored that if we were going to try and fight a war and use nuclear weapons at the same time, which was the plan in, in under. Um, the NATO strategy of the latter part of the Cold War, that we could have actually have had a lot of our other um, assets actually grounded once this... Well, yeah, you see, we're back to my my little sort of uh, girly iPhone. Uh, Electromagnetic pulses would have knocked that out. Absolutely. I wouldn't have been able to switch on my transistor radio to find out what to do, to find out... Because the pulses would have gone. And that would have been just the same sort of footprint, the same sort of plume as we would have got from something, and it could have been as far away, a bigger, a bigger sort of kiloton could have been as far away as, uh, I don't know, the Norway. The big panic about the um, 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 EMP um, kicked in in the mid-80s, as I remember, fairly near the end of the Cold War, but it hadn't really been appreciated before because we didn't have the dependencies on communications, etc., or we didn't think we did. And, and, and even vehicles, which are so dependent on... 
on information technology that they just stop working if you have EMP and all yeah. of that. But that yeah. was interesting. By the way, there's one other thing that, that uh, comes out of this uh, volcanic eruption, and that is that Iceland, of course, is very active volcanically. It has a lot of eruptions, um, which t ha haven't bothered us all that much in the past. I mean, in fact, we were bothered back in the 18th century to the extent of many hundreds of people dying from respiratory um, complications. But uh, they, they don't always happen because the prevailing movement of air tends to take the plumes away from Northern Europe rather than across Europe. And the reason why they've been coming down our way is because of the, of the different um, uh, upper atmosphere wind patterns this, this year, uh, connected with the reason why we've had a cold winter in the UK, itself connected with the solar sunspot <coughs> cycle. Mm. And uh, so, so it's a nice kind of ramifying picture here. But what it alerts one to is that if climate change were to advance to a point where weather patterns and wind patterns and uh, uh, ocean current patterns were affected, then our vulnerability to these natural disasters and to rather dramatic fluctuations in weather would be increased. And that's worth remembering. Mm. Right. OK, let's talk about power in another way now, because I'm afraid we've got to come down to earth. Um, the United States Defence Secretary apparently <coughs> told the President that American plans uh, for dealing with Iran were never much good. Rosemary, what's going on here? <laughs> Uh, it, it, they go round and round in circles with this one in the United States. Uh, there's a perception that the Americans are, on the one hand, preparing for containment of a nuclear weapon-capable Iran um, versus that all their strategy is about dissuading Iran from going ahead with what appears to be giving them the capability to make a warhead in, at very short notice. And... Uh, in the meantime, trying to convince the Israelis that A, they'll be all right, and B, they mustn't do anything to take matters into their own hands. And it's inevitable that something like this would pop up. Well, you know, what is this? Call this a policy? Mm. Well, I mean, the Israelis would have one, wouldn't they? Well... You mentioned Rich Pearl earlier when I met him in a delicatessen in Washington, D.C. a couple of years back, and I had just been to Iran, and I told him that uh, I had the opportunity to tell him, having bumped into him at the cheese counter, uh, did you know that the Iranians don't think that you would dare attack them? And he actually said to me, well, the Iraqis thought that, didn't they? And look what mm. happened to them. <laughs> mm. And uh, I, I was a bit shaken by this. Um, but then I said to him, well, OK, what, supposing you do do it, what do you think you will achieve? And this is the Israeli argument too, by the way. Um, well, it would be a series of airstrikes that would degrade their program and set it back for up to five years. And during those five years, all sorts of things could change politically. Yeah, mm -hmm. yes. Changing politically, John, uh, changes in Ukraine and the arrangements for the, the uh, Russian uh, Black Sea Fleet. Again, the result of an election. Uh, Yushchenko's orange revolution was defeated decisively at the in election. Ukraine. And you got uh, this pro-Russian, uh, Viktor Yanukovych, who has been five times to Moscow since the election in February, and his last visit has resulted in an agreement with the Russians to let them extend their stay in Sevastopol for the Black Sea Fleet I for 25 years. I thought they'd been at one point. Well, the agreement uh, was due to expire in 2017, but the Orange Revolution had uh, made it clear that they would get rid of them earlier than that. 
But now uh, Yanukovych has done it for almost 30 pieces of silver. It is, in fact, a 30% discount on the energy supplies from Russia will be his part of the deal. Which Which is a great pity, because now he's back in the orbit uh, of Moscow, and any hopes that people in the West would have of uh, membership of NATO for Ukraine, that's gone now. And the Russians can turn off Michael Kodner, they can turn off the gas tap at any time they like. Well, uh, initially it's supposed to be worth £29 billion, uh, but, uh, you know, how long that lasts, as you say, it can be cut off any time the Russians like. This whole... it, It illustrates the whole problem of energy security, doesn't it, Michael? Certainly, I mean, the, the, the leverage of, NBC, mm-hmm. uh, of energy security in this particular case. And when we get into this, coming back to this debate tonight, mm-hmm. these are the issues which mm-hmm. don't easily fall into slogans so that you can mm-hmm. actually put them across in a debate. Mm-hmm. But these are the issues that people have got to think out and think through mm-hmm. what it means, if we ever know mm-hmm. what it means before we get into a strategic defence review. Yes, indeed. I mean, as far as Ukraine's concerned, uh, it, the sort of policy that um, a, a current Eastern mm-hmm. member of NATO or the European Union would be looking towards would be finding alternative routes. Mm-hmm. But that's not clearly something that Ukraine, given its current um, politics, uh, will be pursuing. But, but the conclusion is one, of course, that makes um, Ukraine internally, you could argue, less stable. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. Talking of stability, Rosemary... Um, What's this we hear that the Syrians are supposed to have been given Hezbollah in southern Lebanon, Scud missiles? Where did that come from? What do you mean, where did the story come from? Where did the idea come from? (laughs) Well, how are they going to fire them? Well, I I looked to some of you for the technical details of what you would need to fire a Scud missile, but uh, it's it's been a, a, a long long time in uh, over many years uh, iran has provided cash and uh, military equipment to hezbollah via syria this is nothing new and the israelis were deeply unhappy with the outcome of the 2006 war between them and hezbollah because the uh, hezbollah guys managed to survive and keep hurling missiles that went all the way into haifa into israel uh, despite everything that the Israelis could throw at them. Mm. They lost that one, didn't they? So morally or psychologically, they lost it. Mm. And the word is that they're looking for an excuse, mm. which might be the reason mm. for the story, they're looking for an excuse to have another go. Because at they Hezbollah can't, at the moment? At Hezbollah. Mm. Can they fight on two fronts, which would be Hezbollah and maybe Hamas? Well, they've always fought Hezbollah with Gaza getting battered in the background. I mean, in the 2006 war, it started in Gaza. And uh, they were battering Gaza, and then Hezbollah raided across the border and gave them the excuse to go hell for leather after them. And it's sort of six of one and half a dozen. They're going to do it, are they? They're going to go in and have a go? Well, the word from the region is that they don't know which it's going to be. Will it be the Palestinians that get in the eye of the offensive, or will it be Hezbollah? Or Syria. Uh, conceivably... Are you there next week? What, Syria? No. In in Israel? In Israel, yes. Will you ask them? Let us know. Uh, Which one it's going to be? Or whether they're going to do anything at all? I think they would would suggest to me that I'd be wary on all fronts. Mm. They would certainly want me to be afraid. The answer is they won't rule anything out. Okay, let's have something lighter. Because four men have set sail in the South Pacific to recreate the 4,350-mile voyage of Captain William Bly. 
Captain Bly, or Charles Lawton, as older listeners will know him, was cast adrift after the famous Mutiny on the Bounty. That was in 1789, Mutiny on the Bounty. Bly managed to sail from near Tonga to West Timor in a voyage that lasted 50 days. On the line from the University of Salford, the naval historian, Professor Eric Grove. That was a truly epic voyage, wasn't it, of Bly's? It was, absolutely, and it shows what a fantastic seaman Bly was. I'm glad to say that Bly has been pretty comprehensively re, um, rehabilitated of late, and uh, his virtues, I think, now are, at least by sort of serious historians, are seen as being rather greater than his vices. Unfortunately, he didn't suffer fools gladly, and he had rather a rough tongue. Yes, but, I mean, these guys um, uh, sort of overshadow, because they're recreating that voyage, overshadow his late, or his career generally. I mean, he had quite a... Uh, he was with James Cook on his, his last voyage, and I think he, Bly, reported... Uh, Cook's rather gruesome death in Tahiti, right, didn't yes. he? In fact, he was, he'd been nominated by Joseph Banks because of his connections with Cook. Joseph Banks was the, region so well. the, the, the botanist. That's right, yes. And, 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 and he was definitely, in a way, he was Cook's successor or natural successor. So when they, sent, when they wanted to send a ship to see if they could uh, grow breadfruit and feed it to the slaves in the West Indies, uh, uh, Bly was the obvious character. I mean, he caused a bit of trouble. I mean, when he, a few years after the, this whole thing with the bounty um, causing trouble there, sent him off to New South Wales, right. off to govern, govern New South Wales, another problem ran into. Yes, there was, and I, unfortunately I think it was because of his sort of virtues that he'd been sent there, and his virtues came back to haunt him, because he was sent there again by banks, who had strong connections, of course, of the Australian colony in New South Wales, to actually get things in order, to sort out corruption and this kind of thing, which he did in his usual style, but he eventually had the, um, had the local army mutiny against him. Why? Uh, because he was trying to, uh, well, this is very controversial, he was trying to clamp, clamp down on some of their unofficial activities, like using rum as currency and this kind of thing. In fact, it, it's, it's known as the Rum Rebellion. Uh, 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 this, I think, is rather more controversial, I think, perhaps, than the mutiny on the bounty itself. But I think, I get the impression he was a person who was perhaps a little less than wise in some of his politics and got uh, in a difficult situation, perhaps his attitude to other people made it worse. I was looking at a painting the other day, he didn't look at all like Charles Lawton, did he? Not he was at all, quite no, but Charles Lawton was a complete calumny. In fact, uh, if, you could, uh, if you could sort of do sort of a libel, uh, you know, libel actions from the dead, I think Bly, Bly would be a, 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 a clear person to have a go on that front. Right, OK, let's move on. Actually, it's just one other thing. The boat they're going across in is, is quite small. I bet they capsize a bit daft to me. Anyway, have you got a Toyota? That's the question. Um, you may, because I tell me you can get quite a good deal nowadays. Um, I was interested in an American survey this week that Americans, perhaps a bit nervous of brakes and sticky accelerators, are returning to American automobiles. And a recent poll suggested after Toyota's less than total recall, Americans for the first time in years believe the United States-based companies are making better qualities. Right, buy Americans, but you can't buy British, can you? Now, Eric, you know all about motor cars. You've got lots of models of them. Yes. Uh, apart from Morgan, Bristol, that's about it, isn't it? Not very much. I mean, Lotus? The odd thing is that all our sort of mass production manufacturers are now owned by foreign companies, whereas the opposite is the case. Mercedes-Benz actually make their Formula One engines in Britain. So it seems as if the British but, are good at that kind of skilled kind of motor industry, but, sure. but not very good at producing cars for consumer consumption. But I was thinking BMW own Rolls-Royce, Jaguar is owned by the Indians, VW owns Bentley, and the Nanjing Automobile <laughs> Club owns um, MG. I'm thinking, I'm just wondering, let's bring the others in, um, uh, John, identity becomes e 
it, you know, it becomes terribly important to a nation. It's probably why the English are losing their identity. Well, we're giving it away left, right and centre. Only today we're going to have all the buses in this country run by a German company. I mean, this is ludicrous. You mean on time? <laughs> yes. Who is giving it away, John? Are you Scottish or English at the moment? Well, it's in Scotland and in England. Reba operate all over the country. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just wondering if it's a bit more than that. Um, we mustn't confuse sort of Britishness with Englishness, must we? And I think well, Scottish, certainly not. No, no. Yeah. This business of the, of the of the um, of the of, of, of the motors, I mean, this raises the issue of operational sovereignty, doesn't it? Which is a big thing for defence acquisition. Mean? Well, provided you're actually making the stuff in UK, you can yeah. then have some control of um, what's coming out of oh, the spares and things yeah. like this. Um, yeah. I don't. And the other part of it, which I, I'm interested in, the, and the fact that British forces are on an operation, they hold together and perhaps set an example of national identity, don't they? Or is, that, or is that just being terribly you know, naive? I think it's terribly true. I mean, mm. uh, my experience with the first, first Highland Division, I admit, was a minority of Highlanders. You were a horse but, gunner, weren't you? But I, I was on Scottish horse. But, I mean, the Highland Division had a sense of, of unity, uh, even though they weren't of the same nation. Yes. I, certainly, I think the, um, the, the Britain didn't has never faced the problems the United States has faced about trying to integrate its its army units. Um, building uh, a culture, a common culture, has always been much easier, and that's reflected in uh, a very much more adaptable doctrine. Well, I, I, I attribute to Englishness things that I hear from the non-English, which is uh, <laughs> that they won't tell you it straight, and they'll they'll dress it up and they'll do it politely. But also, when they want to stab you they will slip the, uh, the, the knife in very coolly between the ribs. Oh, well, I'm sorry, Eric, I was going to come back to you. We haven't got time again, but we're going to talk about Blackpool trams. That's very English. Well, that's <laughs> it for this week. Next week, we're devoting most of SIPREP to what's going on in Afghanistan. So join us there next Thursday, the 29th of April, 4 o'clock UK time. Meanwhile, from all of us here, John Dickey, Eric Grove, Martin McCauley and Rosemary Hollis, thank you very much for being with me. I'm Christopher Lee. Mary? Mary's in the hut. Sit with Christopher Lee.